my conversation today is with someone that Dr. Wayne Dyer mentioned in his book, I Can See Clearly Now. And I figured out who she was in the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community. I was so excited to bring her on and have this conversation. Linda was the one who arranged Dr. Wayne Dyer's first public speaking gig back when he was a professor at St. John's University in New York. She has an incredible story to share and her own memories of Wayne Dyer. So stay tuned for all of that. Don't forget to come out and support me on Patreon. I've got some special bonuses out there just for my patrons, including full video for this episode. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia De La Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community on Facebook. This podcast would not be possible without support from loyal fans like you. And I want to give a big thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon. You can find the link to that and more details about this podcast at NadiaDelacruz.com. Now, my guest today played an important role in the career of Dr. Wayne Dyer. She arranged his first public lecture when he was still a professor at St. John's University back in 1975. Dr. Dyer talks about this pivotal moment and his gratitude for Linda's contribution in his book, I can see clearly now. She is a graduate of St. John's Law School, a practicing attorney for 40 years, and a published author of two books. Linda Gornanos, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Nadia. And I also want to thank you for keeping Wayne's legacy alive and keeping his wisdom out there and introducing new people and also reminding his followers of all that wisdom that, that he gave us. And so thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. It's something that's definitely in my heart and, you know, um, we we do the best with the cards that were dealt, right? And things have come together for this group to be what it is. And I am just so honored to play a role in continuing his legacy and keeping his teachings circulating. And I gain so much from it personally. Like I still learn every single day something new from his books and his lectures and meeting people who knew him and hearing their stories. And um, I'm really excited for our conversation today. And um, like several of my other guests, we met in the Waynedar Wisdom community when you had commented on a post saying that you knew Wayne and actually he mentioned you in his book, I Can See Clearly Now. And when I saw that, I just felt this strong nudge to go grab my copy of the book, flip through, and I knew, I knew I would find you. I felt guided. And it didn't take me long to land on a page, a page that said Linda. And I was like, it's her. I know it. It must be her. So I sent you a private message saying, were you the one who arranged Wayne Dyer's first public lecture? But I just knew. And I think that Wayne was guiding me. I definitely feel his hand in so much of what we're doing. But were you surprised when you got that message from me? Yes, I'm very happy, very happy to uh, go back and, and try to reconstruct that. I've been on a journey to reconstruct what happened in that very peak time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, why don't we dive into a little bit of what he wrote about you? Um, so I have my copy of I Can See Clearly Now, one of my favorite books from Wayne. And he had said that he was done writing books. He told his kids, you know, I'm done. I got nothing to prove. I'm just going to take it easy. And then the next morning he wakes up and he starts writing this. And there's so much um, detail and so much just... Um, there's such a strong message when he's using the synchronicities of his life. When he looks back, he sees this thread that was bringing him forward, that there's a connection to everything. And he wanted to show us that there was a connection in our lives, too, that we can look on our, on our own lives and see how we're guided and how things are meant to be. So in chapter 28... Uh, he's talking about how he's doing lectures at St. John's University. Um, as many know, he was a professor there. Uh, and he says that, um, let's see, he said some students approached him. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. But he said, it turns out one of these students, Linda, works in Port Washington at the Education Assistance Center, EAC, as an administrator and tells me that the building is never used past six o'clock on Monday evenings. She'll make the EAC available at no cost if I'm willing to teach a course open to the public. I agree and come up with a course title for this four-week night school offering, Living a self actual excuse me, living a self-actualized life. I just love that title. Linda plants a brief story in the Port Washington News inviting the public to four lectures on four consecutive Monday evenings beginning in February 1975. I'm going to be giving a lecture, a lecture to the public for the first time. Total cost for the course is $20. Oh my gosh, how I would have loved to be there. He goes on to say that he ends up earning more money from his lecture series than he was making as a full-time professor at the university. He says, I now see that Linda and her four friends approaching me about offering a series of paid lectures to the community were angels sent into my life on a divinely appointed mission. At the time, I simply saw a fun new adventure from a distance with a clearer vision. I see how this experience launched me in an entirely new direction. And the rest, as they say, is history. So tell me about what you were doing back in 1974 when you met Wayne Dyer. Okay. Well, the story of how we met is, is a little bit humorous because uh, I was working as a community counselor at the Education Assistance Center, and I had graduated college as a language major. So I had absolutely zero experience, except for two summer programs where I was a counselor. But the director, of course, the salary was terrible. And the director said, don't worry, we'll train you. So it turned out that in the fall of 74, I was sent to a training workshop. And with, with the four uh, people, there was the one mistake that, that Wayne made in the book. It, we were not from St. John's where he was teaching at the time. We were all from the EAC. So four, four counselors from the EAC were sent to this workshop and we were in a circle with like t over 20 counselors uh, from the full county to, and he was going to train, give us counselor training. He was teaching psychology and we were going to be trained as counselors. And he went around the room asking everybody, well, what do you want to get out of this program, et cetera. And they all said such bright, brilliant, insightful things. They came to me and I knew 
that I was the I was 22. I was the youngest person. I was the least experienced. And when the attention came on me, I just started to cry. And um, it's still embarrassing to say, you know, but (laughs) Wayne, (laughs) Wayne being the master teacher that he was, it became a teaching moment. And so he launched right into showing how teaching his self-actualization concepts. And I think even though I didn't want attention, I started to cry because I didn't want anybody to look at me. The first hour ended up being about my crying. (laughs) So, um, you know, he said, all right, first thought, you know, in in this whole self-actualization process that your emotion is a thought first. And mine was totally fear of the unknown and being found out to be like inexperienced and not knowing what I was doing. And uh, once you, you know, can change the, the thought, you change your emotion. And also looking at what do you get from that emotion? And you showed me how, well, you're telling people back off. You know, I'm sensitive and I'm scared and, and don't, and I'm crying to let you know that I don't want to be, you know, Uh, hurt. And I had no idea if they were going to psychoanalyze me. I'd never been to a psychologist. So it was total fear of the unknown. But he spent a a large amount of time uh, talking to me about, well, talking in the group and making it a lesson. And so that's how I met Wayne. And I became his pet project, actually, (laughs) because he felt I was so ripe for this self-actualization that he was teaching and that was his passion at the time. And he thought, I can cure you because I said, this is a lifelong thing for me, you know, this crying. And um, he said, I I can cure this. And so that also began another relationship that we had, which was he invited me to a counseling group that where he was training people in self-actualization. And, um, we did a lot of role playing and such. And so that was another aspect of, of our relationship that we had this group that met and um, we drew all this role playing and it was, it was really fun. It was nothing uh, heavy. You know, people had issues with their employer, their spouse, their boyfriend, whatever girlfriend. And he would show us, new ways to look at it, new ways to approach it, new ways to interact with people, all using the, the concepts of um, a, you know, self-actualization, which became erroneous zones. Now, did you know who he was? Because at this time, he was really only known by students at the university, right? Right. He, this was pre-erroneous zones. Uh, he was just a professor at St. John's. He was not a household name that he later became. He was absolutely, I had no idea who he was, you know, and neither did anyone else at that time. What was he like? He was so much fun. You know, Wayne is just, he, he is just a fun guy. You know, he's uh, funny and entertaining, which is why he rose to the fame that he, he achieved because he was so much, so enjoyable to be around so enjoyable to listen to, uh, captivating, charismatic. He was an incredibly charismatic personality. You know, he loved to tease me. You know, that was like one of his favorite things. So even in the counseling group, 
we would all do role playing, but he would want to be the person to role play with me because he would just be so funny. So I was trying to break up with a really horrible boyfriend. And of course, my anecdotes in the counseling group, he wanted to play the boyfriend and role play with me. And he was the greatest jerky boyfriend. He was hysterical. <laughs> so uh, you know, we had, you know, th those groups were, were so much fun. And we met for over, for over a year, a year with his involvement. And then after Erroneous Zones, he went off to promote the book. We continued to meet for a while just as a leaderless group because we had all of the mm -hmm. tools that he had taught us to use. And we continued to meet and become friends. And it was just a, and that was a wonderful experience. But he was, um, he's just a, you know, just a captivating person, charismatic. Yeah. That's certainly how we all knew him too. Yeah, and such an approachable person at every point, even throughout his life, even as the most famous person, he was just approachable, always had a hug for everybody. You know, he was mm -hmm. uh, just a people person, total people person. And academia was the worst thing for him. I mean, that whole thing, uh, when he writes in his book about how, um, you know, he was warned that, you know, erroneous zones was something that was just kind of going to bring down the reputation of St. John's as a serious really? uh, educational institution. Yeah, that's in, in, uh, in I can see clearly now that, um, you know, they didn't like the book at all. They thought it was not serious, um, you know, psychology. And, um, you know, he used to talk about in his lectures how when he was a doctoral student, one of his professors said, I teach the doctoral students, but you, Wayne, are going to teach the cab drivers. You've probably heard, heard that one, but because he just had a way of, you know, relating to people and he related on mm -hmm. a very, um, you know, unassuming level, which I think that the school didn't find, the, the college didn't find to be scholarly enough, you know? Yeah. He would just have hated being a professor and being on a tenure track and not just having this, it, he, he wasn't cut out for that, you know? It was very intentional on his part, the his writing style, and that he, it was his mission to reach people outside of the school. And when he was crossing the stadium to receive his doctoral diploma, Abraham Maslow died very suddenly of a heart attack. And that was one of his great teachers who talked about yeah. self-actualization, right? And he said he just really felt very strongly, okay, you know, Maslow taught it to the academics and I'm going to go take it out to the rest of the world. It's like handing the baton, right? Passing it on. And Wayne didn't just get um, criticism from uh, the university, he got pushback from his publishers. They said, this is, you know, this is not scholarly enough. Like you said, it doesn't sound, um, they wanted it to have all these references and be like a textbook. And he had done those. He had co-written several textbooks uh, as a professor, but that wasn't, that wasn't who he was meant to reach. That wasn't who he was here for. He was here for all of us. And I think it was very, um, well thought out the way that he showed up on talk shows 
and he had a presence on the Tonight Show many, many times, and he would go on radio shows and everything. Like, he went where people would see him, and that way he could reach us. And I think that his confidence and his charisma was like the the perfect tool, the perfect package to bring us to this higher level of awareness. And I just can't imagine in my own life how different things would be had he not taken that path, had he not, um, you know, stood up for the vision that he had. Because it's not that all of these teachings are new, but they weren't packaged for the everyday person. And that way they weren't as accessible and they weren't um, maybe as useful or as relatable. And he would put these books that anybody could pick up and read. He never made you feel stupid, you know, and um, that was his gift. Yeah, I, I would like to just say that that because of this charisma, you know, we started the, with the small groups uh, in EAC, which was not a big venue at all, you know, like classroom mm-hmm. size. And mm-hmm. it quickly outgrew that. And my recollection is that the next step was that we uh, rented the Main Street School Auditorium, which had like a 250 or 300 capacity, and co- co- quickly outgrew that and moved it to the uh, high school. So I re- he didn't talk about that in the book, but I seem to recall that we went first to the, the Main Street School, and, you know, an elementary school auditorium compared to a high school auditorium, you know, like mm-hmm. it was a 300 person capacity to a thousand person capacity. But he could he immediately filled it. You know, it, it, it was mm-hmm. just um, th- that charisma. He reached people. And I remember one time after. um Speaking uh, after one of his talks, uh, you know, I used to collect money at the door, which is another story I want to tell. But I used to collect the money at the door, at of the auditorium, and I remember wanting to give the money that we collected to him. And I walked down, and he was mobbed with people just wanting to get a piece of him, wanting to talk to him. Couldn't get near him. I was like. Just wave to him and got the money. See you later. You know, <laughs> but I, it, I just have that picture in my head of all these people swarming around him, and he loved it. He wanted just to, you know, he he thrived on that. That just gave him his energy. But I wanted to tell you a funny story about the um, about the the taking money at the door and how. You know, the, the expression out of the blue, I think coming from the sky is is just coming spirit, you know, from spirit. And um, I've been trying to put together a lot of things about the time with Wayne uh, in recent years for reasons that we'll talk about later. But um, I was like, there were a lot of people. How did I, I'm sure, you know, and every auditorium has two two entrances. Who helped me collect the money? So, you know. It was just a thought, you know, how did we do that? Well, you know, how did we do that? So I get, someone contacts me and I haven't heard from this person for, for a couple of years. And she said, uh, my husband and I are going to be out on Long Island where I live and we're renting a summer place. Would you and your husband like to come out and spend the day with us? And so oh, that sounds wonderful. So we go out there. And in the course of that day, she goes, remember when we used to collect money at the door when Wayne spoke? And I was like, oh, Yes, I remember it. And then we had talking about it. But it was like, 
I put it was I put the question out there and you know the answer came and it was uh, yeah that's how we did it <laughs> and the place just you know it just grew by leaps and bounds and um, yeah it, it was a wonderful experience so you know and, and my my I had these all these different interactions with him as you know as a counselor you know in the self actualization groups and then as the uh, you know working with him to to um, set up these speaking engagements. And, you know, I started to wonder, especially, you know, after he passed away, you know, what exactly was our relationship? I always felt like he was so famous that I thought it was presumptuous for me to say that I was friends with Wayne Dyer. Now, I knew a couple in Port Washington who played tennis with him and his wife. I didn't play tennis with Wayne. I didn't go out to lunch with Wayne. I've never gone to a movie with Wayne. I'm not his friend. But I think that Wayne didn't see it that way. And Wayne considered me a friend. I felt like he's my mentor. He's my counselor. I'm setting up these programs. How could I say he's my friend, you know? And um, about, uh, well, 20, actually 25 years later, he, he used to inscribe books to me. If I went to a speaking engagement, he would always put a you know, a nice inscription in. And in one of them, he said, to my friend of 25 years. And mm. I said, yeah, he considered me a friend. Um, it, was a, it was an odd kind of relationship that, um, you know, because of the different roles that I, I mm -hmm. had with him and different relationships that I had with him. Well, he had a position of authority but he obviously really respected you and felt like you had a connection and, you know, you played a role in his life. When he sat down to write this book, he obviously remembered you. Um, so I think that's beautiful. I know you shared with me a letter. Yeah, I was just going to get the letter. <laughs> yeah, um, I have it here um, that you sent to me. And I just I just love seeing this in his um, mix of cursive and <laughs> capital print Whoa. and it's so Wayne <laughs> and um, yeah and he says Linda how great to hear from you I always loved you you gave me the original room that launched my speaking career yeah, and then it says, here are two sets of tapes. And I have so many sets of tapes that he sent me. Now, what do you do with cassette <laughs> tapes these days? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and on and on. But I don't know at the very bottom, because I told you how he always liked to rib me and tease me. The last thing at the bottom says, P.S., don't you dare cry. Which he <laughs> had to say that every time I saw him, are you crying anymore? It had to, Aww. he had to always, you know, get that in. <laughs> yeah, it was the little inside joke that you guys yes. had. That's really yes. cute. <laughs> now, Wayne had already written the um, the manuscript for his first book, Euronia Zones, at the time that he was doing these talks. So I know I've shared this story before about the day that he describes as the most significant day of his life. That was the day that he ended up at his father's grave through a series of very unusual synchronicities. Um, and although this was not his plan at the time, ended up just being filled with forgiveness and love for his father and said, from now on, I send you love. This is a man who abandoned him. I think most people know this story. 
Um, and then he came back from that and in two weeks wrote this book that he kind of had on his heart and had been kind of collecting some notes for. He sat down and in two weeks wrote the whole thing. So he had this manuscript. And one of the things that I love about this story is that not only did these public lectures sort of show him that he had the potential to make a lucrative career outside of the university and that he could speak about whatever he wanted to speak about, but it connected him with his first um, literary agent, Artie Pine. Let's see, I think I've got a note somewhere here. Yes. Um, so his soon-to-be literary agent, Artie Pine, contacted him because Artie's wife was friends with someone who was going to these lectures. And her friend told her and she told her husband, like, you got to get this guy in and see if he can write a book. So Artie contacts him and Wayne's like, well, actually, I already have this manuscript, um, which was Erroneous Sounds. It's my little um, copy here been a lot of different printings of this and uh so it's like he didn't even know how the book was going to get out and this was how it happened it was these things that connected one after another and then once erroneous zones was printed and um wasn't actually doing very well he decided he wanted to go on the road and sell it and turn down the job when he was about to get tenure and that i mean that was a huge redirection of his life. And he said, if these things hadn't happened or he hadn't said yes to them or he hadn't recognized the opportunity or thought, hey, yo, let's give it a go, he may have remained a professor for the rest of his life and he would have never played that music that was inside him. I mean, I, I, you said that the university was like the worst place for him, but I think it was a wonderful foundation because he learned about what he wants and what he doesn't want. And I remember him talking about being inspired by many of his professors when he was in doctoral, stu uh, doctoral student that they were so boring and they were putting everybody to sleep. And he said, you have a captive audience here. Like, what a waste. And so he was already thinking in his mind of how would I do it? How would I do that? And then when he became a professor, he got to practice it. He got to really um, you know, expand on his ideas. And when he started doing these public lectures, he could talk about whatever he wanted. You know, there wasn't a, a curriculum that he had to follow. And, and it's just amazing how things progressed um, one after another. So yeah, divine timing. I, I would like to tell my story. I shared it with you about the inscription that he put in Erroneous Zone. So mm -hmm. please. Uh, we had been together in, in the counseling and the and this speaking engagement business <laughs> together for about a year and a half and um erroneous zones was published and i was at eac and eac was like at the top of a, a 30 stair 30 stair staircase and wayne if he could run he he didn't walk, you know, and he <laughs> sprinted up all 30 uh, steps with my copy of the book to give me as a gift. We've talked about his humor. He is a very funny guy and he's a little on the, what do you want to call it? Raunchy, some body side, I'm going to say. He can, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, when I knew him, he was not the, uh, into the spirituality that became a journey of yeah. his that developed and evolved at the time he was not 
Um, and he, and he, he kept his sense of humor, though, for sure. Just I have to give a bio 101 uh, because I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong word. But the word uvula, the, the human body part, is the appendage in the back of your throat. And I opened up the book and it says, Linda, I hope this book tickles your uvula. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, my God. And I think my face dropped and I was trying to process it. At this, what is this? And he just looked at my face. He said, I'll be right back. He turned around, ran down the 30 steps, came back a little while later up again. And he gave me this book. And inside it says, Linda, I love you. Really, I do. You are something special. Wayne Dyer, 3176. Now, that book, of course, is very cherished by me. But I also wish I had the other book because that would be a collector's yeah. item. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> you just had one look at my yes. face and that was the end of that. But, um, yeah, he, he, that was his humor. Yeah, he used to joke about that people would mistake your erroneous zones as your erogenous zones and that sometimes the bookstores would put it uh, in the wrong section. And I had heard him say that, but I didn't realize that he was perpetuating those jokes too. And he was getting a <laughs> kick out of that. But oh yeah, he, his humor was always on the edge. And, and I love that. I remember he used to quote uh, Jack LaLanne and when he'd come up for a talk and he'd say, you know, I'm, I'm 69 years old or whatever it is. And he says, and I have sex almost every day. Almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. his quote, but he, I mean, he loved making jokes like that. And even, even when he got into spirituality in the late 80s, early 90s, and, you know, oh, that doesn't change that. No, he had, he had a big presence and a, and a big sense of humor. I remember him sharing the story of meeting Marcy, right, his wife, and he had so many children with um, lovely Marcy. I believe they met at a Valentine's Day party, and he was wearing a heart on his sweater or jacket, or jacket whatever he had on. And um, he walks up to her, and he says, do you see this? I have a heart on for you. <laughs> yes, that was, I remember that story. Oh, my goodness. But he got the girl, so, yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 he did, he did uh, win her over. And, uh, yeah, so that was my uh, experience with his humor. But, yeah, so uh, I, I, after that, after he published Erroneous Zones by May of that year, which was 76, um, he closed his counseling practice, and I think he moved off of Long Island. And from that time on, the only times I ever saw him were at speaking engagements. And mm -hmm. he always had a huge greeting for me when I came and he would, um, I sent him greeting cards for 30 years. I sent him holiday greeting cards and he would send me a tape set. That's why I have a stack of tape sets. And he would have, uh, and books and, and inscribed books and things. And when I saw him, he always you know, wrote something lovely in the book. So, but that was, you know, for the next, that was 30 years of our, our relationship. Uh, you know, the majority of it was, was that, you know, just when I, oh, Wayne's in town, I think I'll go hear him talk and I'll buy a book and whatever. And so we stayed in touch, but lost touch um, around, 
you know, I would say 2004. It was at least 10 years before he died. At the time he wrote, mm -hmm. I can see clearly now we had not been in touch for about 10 years. And I, I hadn't read the book and I didn't know that he had written about me. So I want to talk about this, what happened, uh, because um, it's kind of a crazy story. So I was very sad when, when Wayne passed. And as I said, I hadn't been in touch with him for a long time. Um, but two years after he died, I was out with my friends um, at a restaurant. And it was very atypical because these two best friends we went out on Friday nights, like once a month, but one of them was leaving on a vacation. So she said, let's go out on a Tuesday uh, before I leave. So we went to this local restaurant and we didn't know it was ladies night and there was, was a free glass of wine and, a, and tarot readings. So the host came to our table and says, our, our tarot card reader has an opening um, would one of you like to take it? And I've already had my free glass of wine. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I go into the booth with her inside. And she starts doing, you know, she's turning her cards. I know you do tarot cards. And she's telling me my, you know, what's going on in my life. And all of a sudden, she's like the strangest look on her face. Do you know? I'm not a medium. I'm not, I don't channel. That's not what I do. But I have Wayne Dyer coming in loud and clear I know him I couldn't not, I couldn't mistake him because I've listened to his books on you know audible books and he's talking to me you know it's just this never happened to me I didn't say anything um and he's got a message for you he says you have a book to write and you have to write it I was like, hmm, okay she went on and finished her reading and at the end and I, I kind of like Anytime I've had any kind of psychic readings or anything, I don't like to interfere. I want to hear what they say without influencing the uh, reading. At the end, I said, you know, I, I knew Wayne Dyer kind of well. And um, really, really, she was very interested in that. And I told her that. I was like, wow, but he was really pushing that point. And he kept coming back in, coming back in. You got a book to write? I said, okay, well, thank you very much. And I just was so... Like, wow, that was strange. And I, I, I went home and I told my family who all knew, you know, about my relationship with Wayne. And I told them what had happened, you know, and I was like, that was the strangest thing. Oh, one of the things that she had said when I sat down with her, she said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, no, because I didn't know I was coming here tonight to see. I wasn't planning to have this reading. She says, well, those are the best readings because it meant you were directed you were guided to me. Mm -hmm. So in any event, at that point, I left it and I said, well, I don't want to get hooked on this, but she's there every Tuesday night for ladies night. I'm going to go back because I, I do have some manuscripts. I had two at the time and I want to know which one he wants me to write. So I went back and I said, hi, I'm the one who knew Wayne Dyer. Oh yeah. She didn't, she didn't remember. And um, starts to do the tarot card reading. And I said, this time I have a specific question. I want to know which book he wants me to write. And she said, she's listening and listening. And she said, the one about women overcoming obstacles. 
Mm. Ooh, I was hoping it was the other one. <laughs> so I said, I said, oh, I have a manuscript about women overcoming obstacles, but I couldn't, I couldn't sell it. It's called 40 Years of Menstruation. And she says, it should be called 40 Years of PMS. That will sell a lot better. <laughs> so I said, thank you. You know, I went home and I took that manuscript. And in six months, it was updated because I had written it actually many years pre prior to that. And I brought it up to date and I edited it and I worked on it and I, I published it within six months. So, but that started me on a quest of sorts because I, I just was saying like, why me of all of the people that Wayne had come into contact with in his career and his speaking engagements and all of the people, why would he come through to me still not considering that he thought of me as a, a friend, you know, why did he come through to me and why this? I'm a lawyer and that's what I do um, for a living and I'm not a professional writer, although I had written one other book and he, he wrote some very nice things about, he read it, I said he read it, he wrote some nice things about it and said all green lights, which was his way of saying, you know, yeah, go, go for it. But I still wanted to know, and, and I started this journey. It became like an obsession with me to answer the two questions, why me and why this? So as we know, nothing happens by coincidence. And I get a, a journal in the, in the mail that I normally would have just gone right into recycling uh, from the Omega Institute. I'm sorry if I insulted somebody, but you know, normally I wouldn't sit down and look through it. <laughs> but I started looking through it. And there was um, a, a workshop with Karen Noe, who's a psychic who has channeled Wayne, and his two daughters, Serena and Sage. So I decided to go to that workshop because I wanted to tell them that I had published a book and that I had written about my time with their father, you know, with Wayne in that book. And I didn't want somebody to say, oh, I read this book and this woman and they and who they, and they would say, who is she? I never heard of her. So uh, that was my intent at the time. And anyway, uh, I met them virtually. Um, they were each pregnant at the time and ended up not being able to go in person to the workshop. So I met them virtually. And they invited me to a series of uh, six sessions of teaching what they had learned from their father. And there were about mm. there were 100 people in this Facebook group. So I began going to that. And as they were talking about different books, I decided to read uh, two books during the, the course of these sessions. And the first was a book, and there's a story about that, but it's called Inspiration. And I was giving a speak, I was doing a speaking engagement at a bookstore. And I arrived early and I said to them, do you have any Wayne Dyer books? Because I was in this workshop at the time. They had one left. I didn't know they were about to go out of business and they didn't mm -hmm. subsequently go out of business as most of these you know, independent bookstores have at this point. But anyway, <clears throat> they said, we have one book left. And that book was the book Inspiration. And Inspiration talks about connecting with spirit. And one of the ways that Wayne connected with spirit was through writing 
And he said that when he was writing, he was with God. And for him, writing was the connection to the higher consciousness. And it was how he connected. And, and so it was something that he wanted me to do. And um, so I read that book. The second book that I read was I Can See Clearly Now. And in the middle, I, I'm reading it, and I come to chapter 28 and see him writing about me. And it was just like this mind-blowing experience for me. And I said, well, now I know why me and why this. And it was like the answer for me to, to those questions. You know, that became a real quest for me to try to reconstruct that time and why this happened. You know, so. Well, you were significant to him. So if you if you ever had any doubt about that before, this is a wonderful confirmation years after he's already gone. You know, like one of the things that I love um, that he wrote is that he says, I now see that Linda and her friends approaching me uh, were angels sent into my life on a divinely appointed mission. And he saw you as an angel in his life. And maybe now he's an angel in yours. And he sees that potential and he wants to foster your connection to spirit. Writing for him was a great way to do that for you. Maybe he sees that you have that in common. He talked a lot about many of his books being channeled writings. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that he was channeling long before he called it channeling. But really, I don't think there's anything crazy or woo-woo about that. I just think that's part of our nature, that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. So of course, of course we're connected to guidance. Of course we're connected to people who have crossed over and angels on our path and synchronicities come and there's something bigger moving the pieces around. And for us to connect to that and know that in whatever way, um, speaks to us is just, you know, to me, it's everything. Spirituality is like this awareness that that fuels meaning in my life. And you talked about tarot. Um, many people know I'm also a tarot reader at angeltarot.org. Cards just speak to me. But the magic isn't in the cards, you know, it's not, it's not there, it's in us. And there's just many ways for us to receive guidance. And for him, writing was a wonderful way to do that. I've been listening to um, his radio show, which has now been converted into a number of podcast episodes. And so often when he's speaking to a guest, he's getting these intuitive hits. And he's like, I feel this for you. And I really think this. And you know, when you do a reading, that's kind of how that works, right? It's like you you open up to receive from spirit and whatever comes through is what's meant is what's meant for that person. So yeah, Wayne Wayne channeled spirit in his own way. And I think that everyone does it. The more we understand that and the more we connect to that, the the more rich, you know, it's like um, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And our lives can go so much smoother with so much less doubt and so much less fear and so much more confidence in our path. Um, it's like, I believe it's from A Course in Miracles that says, and this is something he quoted a lot, if you knew who walked beside you on this path that you have chosen, you would never feel doubt or fear again. That's a beautiful one. I think that was at the heart of his message for all of us. And I love that he came through to connect with you, to remind you that you 
found your way to I Can Sleep, See Clearly Now. Um, Sage and Serena put out, bend over, grab my copy, um, of The Knowing. Um, this was a book, I think it was May 2021, that they put out. Sage Dyer and Serena Dyer Pisoni, The Knowing. And um, it sounds like these are ideas that they had been thinking about and um, polishing, refining. Well, that's um, that group years. that we had. Yeah, that Facebook group mm-hmm. that we had, the six sessions, was really about the teachings that they had with their fathers. So when yeah. uh, I read The Knowing, I knew a lot of the anecdotes that they talked about uh, from that workshop that we did and mm-hmm. and yeah mm-hmm. and so I think that they were actually kind of developing that through this that uh, work you know that they did yeah you got to be on the ground floor again how are you <laughs> always at the right place at the right time <laughs> it looks like way looks that way but um, you know it's kind of surprising that that he that Wayne you know knew that about that book like, I don't understand how that happens, that he knew that it existed. Um, of course, I hadn't started writing it when he was alive. So there's, you know, that's that's a question. But spirit knows. Spirit knows, right? Like, they can, they can see us coming together for birthday celebrations. You know, they draw close when, when we think about them. You know, he says, um, you know, what, what is death? It's just, you know, taking off an old shoe or stepping into the next room, you know, speak to me in the old familiar way. And I know that um, when we die, we return to the expansiveness of this collective divine love. And I think that it's non-local. I think it's non-linear. I think that time is an illusion. And so Wayne, I, I hear from people all the time. And this is something I so love about the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community is that I get to hear these stories from people, these testimonies. And so many times I hear people saying, oh, Wayne shows up when I'm meditating. And so there's just people all over the world that he can pop in and visit and connect with in a way that he was a little bit more limited you know, in his physical form. He actually said that through through the psychic who that who channeled him, the tarot card reader, mm-hmm. in the amid, uh, in that original when he came through, he says he just loves that he can. He's on this huge stage that's bigger than any stage that he had when he was alive. Yeah. That he can reach so many more people um, on that plane. I love that so much. Like. And that's confirmation for me of the feelings that, that I get from him that like, like, ah, like, like it's the next level. It's the next rung on the ladder that he talked about and he can reach people and he can connect with us. He can't make us do anything. He can't get us to stop our own suffering, which he tried for his whole life to get people to, um, stop making themselves suffer so much but he can guide us when we're open to it and when we call it in just like just like angels do just like you know our parents and our grandparents and and who knows who's on the other side uh that's with it but to me that's that's the core of spirituality is that we are connected to so much more and in whatever way you invite that in it's going to enrich your life and these last two years have been so challenging for so many people 
and our, our structures and our lives are not what they used to be. Things don't feel as set or as certain. And I think in times like these, it's more important than ever to find your center within because the sands are always shifting. So it was one thing I, I learned with my, with my book is that I wrote it at a time when I thought I had reached a certain plateau of everything in mm -hmm. my life, having been through the journey of, uh, I say, mating, dating, and procreating, raising kids, mixing <laughs> career, kids, empty nest, and I'm here and I made it. And then I find that, no, the journey never stops. You know, the yeah. journey just keeps going. I'm ready for the sequel because my life has taken so many twists and turns like everybody's life has, you know, uh, in, in the pandemic and um, that so much more has happened even since the book was published, which was 2018, you know, three years oh, later. Wow. A lot has happened since 2018. I, I could write, definitely write another book. So it's like the journey never stops. You know, this is what we're here to do. We're here to keep experiencing and to keep living and learning. And it just, it, mm -hmm. there's no, you reach the plateau, you know. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm done. You know, I did good. <laughs> you know? There's always another rung. And who knows, maybe we come back and, and, and keep going. I don't know. You know, it'll, it'll sure be fun finding out. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. Um, one thing he said, I, I think it was in, in the knowing that um, Sage and Serena were talking about when you're writing, it's, it's a personal relationship with the material and it has nothing to do with with bestsellers, with, you know, how many books you sell, with anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all about the relationship you have with the material that you're writing and the experience. And, um, you know, I guess some people like Wayne, you know, it, it, it resonates, you know, and people just latched on to everything he said, but it, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. And that was not the point of his mm -hmm. writing either. He was always doing a personal thing in his in his writing and, and just expressing what he needed to express in his soul. And that's so key because he couldn't have sustained it. He couldn't have gone as far as he did if he was doing it for somebody else or for approval or for the praise. I really believe that he was teaching what he needed to know. And when he found things that worked for him, he's like, ah, like I feel something with this. This is helping me in my life. I'm going to put it into a form that it can help everybody else too. And he talks so much about detach from outcome. Um, it's something that came up recently in the group as well is how do you, how do you manifest? How do you focus on what you want in your life and also detach from outcome? But it's so key because we have to trust that that there's there's a divine energy that can see the big picture that we can't. And it's like we can sort of put out there, you know, what we want to experience, how we want to feel. Um, it's never about the money. It's never about the number of followers or any of that. It's always about what's going to make you feel on purpose and be of service. And 
um, you know, we we put it out there. But yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the secret is it's for you. It's really for you. And if you're really tuned in and you're authentic, you're going to reach people. You're not going to reach everybody, but you're going to reach people. He was talking about, I can't remember where I read this, but he was talking about how um, in a presidential election, if you get like 52% of the votes, it's considered a landslide, right? So if you have anything more than half of the audience liking what you're doing, that is incredibly successful. In other words, best case scenario, expect half of the people not to like what you're doing, not to understand it, not to resonate with it. And that's perfectly okay. You know, when you put yourself out there for, in whatever you're doing, in anything creative, it's it's hard to, uh, you know, accept that. But that that you know that's part of the process also to understand that uh, it's not going to be for everybody. But you know there yeah, are people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always surprised when you know somebody likes my page and I go to them and then I see that they've put my book in a in their about that person and their favorite books and mm -hmm. and I see that my yeah. book said wow it resonated you know with somebody. And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's a, an amazing thing. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't even know that, that that's going on usually, you know. You put it out there and you hope that uh, it reaches people, you know, um, and that people get something from, from what you've put out there in addition to the personal journey that's, that it also is meaningful to somebody else. I feel you. Love is our gift to the world. So who we are is what we have to give away and whatever form that takes is is whatever it is. You know, it's it's part of the unusual um, life. You know, each of us is so unique. Our experiences, where we grew up, what our parents were like, who we knew, how our beliefs have changed over time, things that we felt, what our fears have been, what our dreams are. Those all shape this sort of humanity that's so unique. And I think that's really beautiful when you think of it in a collective term of like, what are we learning collectively from all of these differences, from all of these unique experiences. And I think um, when we return to spirit, we won't be quite so individualized. You know, I think that we will feel that oneness more. Um, so we're going to go back and go, wow, like, wasn't that a wild ride? Like, you know, and I, I think that we came here I think I think we chose to take birth on this planet because we wanted to participate. <laughs> it's funny because sometimes I feel like I'd really rather just be an observer. Like it feels safer just to be like, well, I'll just sit here and we'll just see what's going on, you know. But I really think that we are courageous souls who wanted to go through this experience, maybe not fully understanding what grief and pain and illness might feel like because we could see the potential and, and what are we gaining from being here? Maybe we don't even know what we're gaining from being here, but I, I have absolute faith that we're here for a reason and it's all worth it, even on, even on our hard days. Well, you know, you talk about souls having a human experience and I, in, in the book, um, 40 Years of PMS, I talk about uniquely the woman's experience because mm. if you think about what women go through from the time of puberty to the time of menopause and those who choose to to give birth and raise children and breastfeed and do all this and there's just so many changes just in our bodies 
and that affect our emotions and affect our well-being and you know it's this amazing human experience that's uniquely uh one that women have and um you know there's a lot to bond about in that experience but there's you know, for those of us who chose to come in in a female body and have all of these experiences, um, you know, it, it, sometimes you don't think it's such a wonderful thing, but uh, it really is. You know, uh, we have an amazing yeah, yeah. experience. So I used to, uh, so I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest of three girls, and I, um, <laughs> I guess I had the luxury of thinking when I was growing up that boys and girls are really not that different. And those ideas weren't challenged a whole lot because I grew up around girls, right? And the boys at school, I just assumed their differences were, oh, well, they're probably just raised different or whatever, but we're really all kind of the same. Until I became a mom and I saw that like, you know, I have a boy and a girl and, and like they come in with their own personalities and, and, you know, like my daughter is much more girly than I am. Like she really loves like the frilly stuff and everything. And I'm like, she didn't get it from me. Like she just has that. <laughs> and then, you know, my boy has like this energy, like he's so sweet, but he's got like this energy, you know, and I'm like, he didn't get that from me. I don't know. He just comes in with it. But, but speaking of motherhood. Okay. <laughs> so very modern approach, right? I'm like, oh yeah, men and women are totally equal until I got pregnant. And I was like, this is not equal yes, <laughs> because <correct. laughs> uh, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy what we go through, what our bodies go through. And, you know, everybody talks about birth, but pregnancy has its own challenges. And then, you know, breastfeeding the baby and everything. And some men actually feel a little bit jealous that they the bond is maybe a little bit different. And I, I mean, there is nothing I'm more grateful for in my life than being a mother. I knew I always wanted to be a mother. I didn't know if I'd get to be one. Um, and I have these two amazing kids, but oof, like I tell my husband, your contribution was small, but significant, <laughs> but I grew those babies. You know, <laughs> like that well, was me. Look what I made. You know, I have to say that in in the book I celebrate womanhood, but mm. as I said, things have happened after, and nothing compares to what I saw during the pandemic with these mm. mothers whose children were, were had their children take going to school at home, and my receptionist mm-hmm. at my office ended up, we didn't have clients coming in during the pandemic. So she had her two kids with their headphones and their iPads at our conference table. And they would come to her while she was answering phone calls and she'd point something out on their computer and they'd go back and she'd come in with their lunches for them, you know, made up every day and never missed a beat on the phone. And I said, this is, this is amazing. Just this multitasking of being able to do her job, watch her children who are going to school at her workplace, you know? And I I mean, I just said, this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know, this is amazing. It's like superhuman. Yes, yes. The multitasking (laughs) and everything that goes on. And uh, yeah, so I'm not saying that men don't have their own amazing contributions. Mm Mm-hmm. And challenges. And yes, but there's something very unique about the, the female experience in yeah, this yeah. Agreed. Human, in this human uh, form. 
So tell us a little bit more about your book, 40 Years of PMS. Well, I mean, as I said, it was this journey from puberty to reaching this, what I thought was the plateau of empty nest and everything. Each chapter was a different phase of life. And I had a group that was meeting. So it wasn't only my anecdotes, but I also shared anecdotes from the group that uh, that I culled. And um, it's all done with humor and, and love of myself as the clueless person that I was at every stage. And there's sort of like a pattern throughout. I start the stage of life very clueless and kind of sort of land on my feet at the end. And each stage goes, progresses. And at the end, it's like, okay, you did okay. You did good. But, um, they, you know, very funny anecdotes because I, I don't really believe how clueless I was at every single stage. Like, how could you just be so consistently <laughs> clueless? <laughs> and, and I was, but it leads to a lot of humor and, um, mm-hmm. you know, but done with love, you know, so... Uh, and, and people say the stories are relatable and certainly because I have incorporated the stories of other people as well, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it keeps it relatable. Yeah, we do the best with what we know and when right. we know better, we do better, right? So sometimes when we look back on our lives, we're like, what was I, what was I thinking? Yeah, I, really. <laughs> I see it and, differently now. <laughs> yes, yes. I can see clearly now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, if we go back to this, um, this letter from Wayne back from uh, December 10th, 1984. And it's really cute. So he sends you the tapes as a Christmas present. You need to save that collection, by the way, because that's valuable. Even <laughs> maybe save a tape player somewhere, too. But I mean, that's, um, that's for the museum, right? That's great. And and he wrote them to you by hand, so that's beautiful. And he said your baby is gorgeous. How old was your was your child in 1984? In 84 that baby was 2 years old. Yeah. Wow. Little yeah. toddler. Um and he said that summer is 15 months old. Ah. Oh, right. Can you imagine? Yes. <laughs> she is a grown woman now. Yes. And he says at the end, Icus is my life's mission now tell the world about her we need her um i'm trying to read his his chicken scratch yes really i'll see if i can help but (laughs) yeah i think i had trouble reading that um something about the same info for you stay in touch i love you wayne and i wondered um if you ever had a conversation with him about icus so i have his book gifts from icus here which is his only fiction book and this was published the year before in 1983 this one's actually a signed copy he didn't sign it to me but i like to collect these um gifts from icus um did he ever talk to you about icus or or how this book came about no i mean not only just to tell me that it was really important to him and so i have to say that um i I, in my book, there were a lot of things that I, I talked about instead of quoting because mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to get permission for every single thing. But sure. because but because he said, tell the world about her, the only book that of his that I quoted from was Icus in, in, in ah. something about marriage and relationships because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, told me to tell the world about her. So I said, all right, I did get permission from his publisher to, to use that one quote. And, um, 
it's not my favorite book. So it was kind of strange <laughs> that I used that. I didn't love his attempt at fiction. And Ike mm-hmm. is basically is um, an extraterrestrial who comes to Earth and finds all of our emotional, our emotional makeup to be very alien to her. And, yeah. you know, we don't have these strange things. Nerves don't break down on her planet, you know. So um, not my favorite book, but, you know, I did take his directive seriously and quote from it in my book. <laughs> so. Well, I think it was it was like a parable. He was trying to use it as a teaching story, and I think he was experimenting with something a little bit different. Ultimately, it probably didn't resonate that much for either him or a lot of people because he didn't return to the format. But what I had read about Icus is that she was actually a spirit guide, that he had a spiritual awakening with a guide that appeared to him um, with the name of Icus, which is actually also um, Sky backwards. Um, he connected it to his daughter Sky. And I think he talks about, and I can see clearly now, and I didn't, I didn't mark that out. But I'm, I believe it's in this book that I read about that. But I thought that was really interesting that he had this kind of deeper um, world of spirit that he didn't always go into a lot of detail with the public about because I think it wasn't, it wasn't like the point of his message. And he's always kind of careful to be like, all right, I know this is sounding a little woo-woo, right, when it's getting a little bit weird. Um, but at the same time, I think he had a very, a very deep um connection to spirit and I remember him saying about um, him feeling the presence of some of his loved ones who had died he's like you know I feel this person with me every day when I'm writing and you know he put pictures in his writing space and I just thought that was kind of one of the more interesting tidbits for me about Wayne Dyer is that he was a little more woo-woo than I think most people knew and a lot of people still think of him as you know the psychology professor who wrote Your Erroneous Zones um, and Pulling Your Own Strings and Real Magic and all of that. And I feel like he never he never dropped that. Like psychology, I think, was still important to him, but he mixed it with spirit in a way that, that we could use. Do you have a favorite teaching from him? I know you said Inspiration was a book um, that, that really struck you, but do you have a favorite teaching or quote from Dr. Dyer? Yeah. That's that's a tough one. Uh, so there's so many. I, I don't think I can focus on a, a, a favorite quote. I know that um, when I I was really really reached out to him and and came back to his teaching was with Real Magic. Uh, that book mm. got to me, and I think in 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 that he began that book with the talk about going to his father's grave. I believe that was in Real Magic. But um, not a specific quote, um, but but that book uh, definitely uh, brought me back to him. To him, like I, you know, I had uh, strayed a bit, and then I I reconnected with that book. So mm. I also used to love uh, what he, his interactions with Deepak Chopra. When the oh, two yeah. of them used to team up and do uh, speaking engagements, and they really bounced off of each other with the spirituality, um, and that's when I saw the, the spiritual side of him coming out, and and some of the tapes that I listened to and programs that I listened to with Deepak Chopra, they were they were really rich. 
Yeah, they had a playful kind of rivalry where Wayne would like, you know, tease him about who was number one on the bookseller list that week. Or um, he used to talk about calling Deeproc and be like, you know, oh, I'm having this concern about one of my kids or whatever. And, and he'd say Deepak would just say, meditate. <laughs> like, that was always his advice. And he's like, no, but Deepak, really, like there's this thing. And he's like, meditate. So yeah, it, was, it was really cute the way that they would um, – play off of each other. And um, I love seeing Deepak still out there putting out new content for us and everything. But but I just really enjoyed this conversation with you and something that stood out. Likewise. Thank you. Since the first time we connected is that it's almost like I can see what you saw, that you bring his early career uh, to life, like him bounding up the stairs and this energy that he had and like that even before the, you know, the public knew who he was, like, he was making people laugh, and he was giving his big hugs, and, and just, I just imagine just his confidence, and his charisma, and his energy, and, you know, he must have been so busy, he had, like, a, a private practice, and he's, you know, lecturing as a professor, and then he's, you know, he's writing a book, and he's, like, he must have just, he was like an idea man, right? He was always studying and creating and coming up with ideas. And he did that for his whole life. But to hear your your story, he just, um, it brings him to life for me. Uh, from before I had a chance to know him, I, I discovered him in the 90s. And so he had already gone onto his path of spirituality. My first book that I read was um, you'll see it when you believe it, which was his first spiritual book. And I just love that. Um, but people ask me all the time, like, I'm new to Wayne, what book should I read? And I usually recommend that one just because it was his first spiritual book. It covers a lot of the basics, but it's just a personal one for me. But just everything, you know, everything, it's like, it's almost like the same message in different forms. There's, there's a heart that runs through through all of it. So I just, I honor your, your path and you're receiving these messages and this guidance and, and continuing your journey. And thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Well, thank you for having me. So what is the best way for people to reach you and buy your book? Books, you have two books, right? Well, actually, the only one that's uh, in print right now, and it's very available on Amazon okay. is, uh, 40 years of PMS with spelled 40, not the number. Okay. And I also have a Facebook page, um, 40 years of PMS Facebook page, and you could message me there and, uh, definitely, you know, check out the page and check out the book and get a few laughs and maybe some insights, <laughs> you know, Great. so yeah, someone definitely. who's been around yeah. the block from someone who's been around the block <laughs> and can laugh about it, which is key because you either laugh or cry and you've done both. Yes, that's exactly. Oh, Wayne was there. He made you say that, Nadia, because he cannot have an interaction without giving me a jab. Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> thank you, Linda, for joining me. Um, thank you, everyone who's who's uh, joined us for this episode. Um, it's just been... Uh, 
a dream come true to be able to continue this journey of connecting with people and bringing your stories out to the world. For all our listeners, thank you for following Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life and telling your friends about it. The full video for this episode will be available for my subscribers on Patreon. You can get all the links and more details about this podcast at NadiaDelacruz.com. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Namaste. Namaste.